Thank you, Nick. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm a pastor here at Covenant Church and one of the elders with the great privilege of serving this church as we go about our mission to know Jesus and make him known. And we're in the middle of a five-week sermon series on Psalm 22 about the sorrow and the suffering King David is writing about as he's working through uh, life. And what is interesting is it's everything we do, I think, connects to mission, but specifically we can struggle sometimes with like, how does sorrow and suffering connect to a mission to know Jesus and make him known? And, and as we work through this, we've said there's two tracks here that each of us is, is sort of kind of dealing with and, and developing new ways to think about and deal with our, our own sorrow and our suffering and the way that uh, life works. And then on the other track, we're all kind of thinking, how can I be a better neighbor, friend, brother, sister to someone I know who is dealing with these things? And so those are kind of the two tracks we're running, but there's also this missional track that runs through the whole thing. Which is this, if we are to know Jesus, the scripture calls him uh, the suffering servant. He's the man of great sorrows. And so if we're to know Jesus, this is knowing another slice, another sliver, another way to to understand who Jesus is, who Jesus is for us. And then as we think about how we love those around us through these things, then that's maybe part of the vehicle that we have in our lives to make him known for those around us. And so it's kind of this beautiful uh, confluence of all the things we love here. And all in doing so by looking at the things that are hard in life. And so today we look through uh, Psalm 22 and we're going to come along a passage that is actually going to uh, force this week of all five weeks, in my opinion, to be the heaviest of the weeks. It's not easy to, to work through uh, the loneliness or, or the battle that comes with sorrow and suffering. We're going to talk about agency next week. Where, where is it that I actually have some control or some ability to, to direct my life in this? And then ultimately, what's the healing look like on the back end of all of this? And, and this week, we're kind of in the, the bottom of the pit. This week, we're sitting in the pain. And uh, to give you a peek behind the curtain, what I usually do when it comes to uh, creating sermons, we kind of know what we're teaching months out. This is where we're going to go. If you ask me, what are we going to teach next Easter? Um, I can show you the schedule that shows you about what we're going to teach next Easter and the the six weeks that run up to it and the basic theme and what's happening. But when it comes to the actual message, I'm probably four or five, six weeks out um, when I'm really feeling good. And this one is one of those that every time I look at it, every time I see it, every time I think back to what we had on on paper that I was going to sit up here and teach every single time, I went, that's not it. And so over and over again, I've come back to this week on pain and gone, God, what is it that we're supposed to do? What is it that we're supposed to dig into? Because it can be such a complicated thing as people to deal with a world that's full of pain. Ultimately, what the question we end up asking in pain is how does a good God allow so much pain and suffering in our world? What we ask is why God? Why? Why does it have to be this way? So what we're going to do today is acknowledge the reality of pain. Sometimes it's just important to acknowledge that it's here and it's a reality and we sit in it. Second thing we're going to do is take down some false views of pain, the ways that we have been conditioned to look at it and how they are maybe not biblical ways of looking at it. And the third thing we're going to do is figure out how God intends to use our pain. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil the ending and say that pain enters so that the work of God might be displayed in our lives. Pain enters into our lives so that the work of God might be displayed in our lives. We're going to get there. We're going to start in Psalm 22 in verse 12. We're going to put it here on the screen so you can read along with me. The Bible says this, King David writes, Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water and all of my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax. 
melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. David says, I can count all of my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword. My only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth. From the horns of wild oxen. David cries out in the midst of his deepest pain. You read this several times, and, and two things pop forward. First, we've said this is a messianic psalm, meaning that this, while this was written for David by David in David's context, it also applies forward into the, the life of Jesus. That the Messiah, Messiah Jesus, was going to be living this out as well. And, and this is when this becomes so clear. The, the psalm opens with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words that Jesus uses on the cross. But then here we see that they're casting lots for his clothing, the same we see in the life of Christ, that they've pierced his hands and his feet. You see the depth of specificity that Jesus was to come and walk in. But you also see a deep chaos that David walks in, a profound pain. Profound pain. The same pain you feel when you hit unexpected summer road construction in Bowling Green. Traffic and road construction, as Bowling Green residents have noted in the last several months, it may, I would call it the finishing kiln of humanity. Modern life, we are baked clay and then we are put into the finishing kiln and fired and that is where we find our true selves. For about the 16th time that you drive down and you're trying to turn left on Main and Main is closed going left so you go straight but Wooster is closed going straight and then you try to turn right and, it's closed, and you realize you're at the nexus of the universe and there's nowhere to go and so you just leave your keys in your car and walk away. It's about how it's felt. You see the brake lights on the highway. You're going to make it to the airport just in time. You timed it just right. You know you have exactly as many hours as you need, exactly as many minutes to check in to do security. You got it all figured out. And then there's brake lights because no one told you there's construction on 75 as soon as you get into Michigan. Why Michigan? And you curse Michigan. The reason that traffic bothers us so deeply, the reason that construction and detours, the reason that the 17th time that I was trying to go north on I-75 this summer, that I was trying to cross over 75 on Wooster, and then I realized that I could not go north from there because the ramp was closed and I had to go left and take a weird, long country ride through the nether regions to get to some place other than where I wanted to go. The reason that that bothers me so much is because it convinces me in that moment that the world that I thought I knew doesn't exist anymore which is the same thing we go through in sorrow and suffering, that, that from one day to the next, from one tragedy to the next, from one suffering and sorrow, from, from the place of wholeness until something is totally broken and it comes to us, we go, the world that I thought I knew doesn't exist anymore. Everything is different. You go to the doctor on Monday, you get the diagnosis Monday afternoon, and Tuesday is a very different day than Sunday was, isn't it? That everything is different. In the pain of sorrow, nothing makes sense anymore. David is feeling it from all sides. Emotionally, he says, my heart is melting like wax. Relationally, he says, people are mocking me. Spiritually, he says, Lord, don't be far from me. Physically, he says, I can count my bones. 
This is the picture of pain. And if you've experienced sorrow and suffering in your life, you know these pains. You know the way your heart can ache. Where the whole concept of heartbreak goes from being a, a metaphorical idea or a neat turn of phrase or something that is in poetry and heartbreak actually becomes something you feel and you go, Lord, why does it hurt so much in here? Your stomach churns, relationships that used to be easy are all of a sudden hard. You feel distance and confusion with God. You even feel that physical crushing. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat with people in the hospital who confess to me. They go, I don't know why my body hurts so much. They're the one in pain. And I've been sitting here for three weeks in this chair, but everything in me is sore and feels broken. We stare into the distance and wonder how our body knows that our heart is broken. Everything feels well, the opposite of how it's supposed to feel. This can't be how the world was designed. This can't be the way that that God wanted all of this to go. And so we begin to ask those questions. How can a good God be okay with this? How can a good God allow this? Or, Or does a good God cause this? You hear it in hushed tones around hospital bedsides. You see it on social media after just the latest mass shooting. The question that runs through everything, the subtext to every conversation is really just asking why. Why? We acknowledge that the pain is real, but we still ask the question, why? And I think we get two wrong answers to that. As I told you, I was going through a thousand different ways to frame what was going to happen today, and I stumbled across a sermon from Tim Keller in 1991, which I thought, isn't that far back? Maybe it's still, like, relevant. And then I realized that there's people in the room that weren't alive in 1991, and I felt old, but also recognized that Scripture's a little older than 1991. And so I said, let's see what he has to say. And the things that he explained helped me understand in a new way that I think will help us understand where we get this wrong. He would say there are two false views. In order to figure out what the false views of pain are, we go to John chapter 9, which we'll put on the screen for you here. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and it says, as he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. A man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Why? Why? Is what they say. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is walking down the path and he's with his disciples and they run across a man that obviously has been born blind and they say, who? Who is it? Is it his fault? Is it someone else's fault? Whose fault? And he knows what they're asking. Why? Why is he blind? And there's two tracks we tend to take in explaining such consequence of life. There's two, two tracks we take in explaining the pain of life. The first track is called the anger track. Which is to say, if I am hurting or something is wrong, there must be someone else to blame. That's the anger track. It's that lashing out. Many people who are justice-minded, and I would say justice is a God-given thing. If that's in you and you're, you have a high justice meter, often you go to anger first. Because there has to be something wrong and somebody has to pay because this has to be brought right. Because the scales of justice are off and there's someone who needs to pay. The city planner has felt this, whether he knows it or not. Who is to blame for the traffic and construction? The city planners, those fat cats in city hall, why do they do this? Columbia Gas, why would you need to replace the things this year? Why not last year? Why not before I moved here? That would have been nice. 
There's always somebody that can't fight back. We create somebody and we find somebody in the ether that doesn't know we're thinking about them, doesn't know we're blaming them, and ultimately can't fight back against the charges that we're filing, even though I missed for the 17th time the sign that says detour, the ramp is closed, even though that's really kind of my fault, I'm figuring out that's somebody else's fault. We sit in counseling and, and there's this kind of innate urge, whether we've created a society that does this or it's just what we want to do, that people ultimately sort of want to get back to, how can I pin this on my parents? And I'll say, well, let's go through what's happening in your life. And someone will go, well, let me tell you about the way I was raised. And I'm like, whoa, 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 no, wait just a minute. <laughs> that has an impact, but that not necessarily on this specific, you know, no, but wait, listen, well, let me tell you what my mom used to do when I was four. And you're like, well, okay, here we go. It's not that it doesn't have an impact. It's not that there's not a downstream effect. But your parents aren't here and they can't find back and it'd be really easy to blame where you are today in this conundrum on something that happened to you 40 years ago. Societally, we do this. We blame groups of people that either don't really exist, they're imaginations and conjurings of our own, of our own minds because we want to put people in little boxes so we can blame them for stuff. Uh, or uh, we need a straw man and so we just create one out of a wide swath of people. And so... I don't know if you watch the news, but it's, is it the fault of immigrants or is it the fault of nationalists? Is it Democrats or is it Republicans? Is it the younger generation or the older generation? We just kind of get these big pockets of people and we go, it must be them. Whoever isn't me, it's them. Because anger builds a straw man because a straw man can't fight back. And so if I get to blame a group, then that, it's the group's fault. And I'm not part of that group, so it's not my fault and I'm free. Or in suffering, we blame God. And we shake our fists and we say, how could you let this happen? Christians are particularly prone to this because there's this contract we think we're signing in some way when we say, I gave you my life and what you gave me in return is suffering? I pledged my devotion to you and I got destruction? We look across the street and go, the sinners across the street are flourishing and your sons and daughters here are are suffering. How is that okay? It's the anger track. The other track is the guilt track. The guilt track says, if I'm hurting, I must be to blame. I must be to blame. Anger looks outwards. There's somebody who's at fault here. Guilt looks inward and says, what did I do to earn this? I grew up Catholic. I don't know how many of you grew up Catholic. We have some great brothers and sisters of Catholic faith, but I do remember one of the things drilled into me as a Catholic early in my life, that the priest, if I didn't confess on Tuesday and something went wrong on Wednesday, it's probably because the sin I had on Monday. And the whole thing was this sort of guilt knot I could never quite unravel. That everything that happened to me was this sort of guilt knot. And so when something went wrong in life, it was, well, you missed this certain step you're supposed to take. And because the ritual wasn't performed and the step wasn't taken, then you probably kind of earned this. So maybe... Maybe say a few Hail Marys. The disciples look at the man born blind and they say, did he sin? Did he sin? Which is sort of a weird question because if he was born blind, what they're asking is, hey, did God look forward in this guy's life and recognize he was going to sin a bunch and then because of some egregious sin, go backwards in time and then say, I'm going to make him born blind as a punishment for future sin. Whether he figures that out or not, I feel like that's justice. That's what they're asking. But it's funny because we say those things, God must be punishing me for blank. I guess asked all the time, why do you think God sent this to me? Why do you think God's punishing me with this thing? 
do you think it's because of that thing I, I did? Do you think it's because of the things I think? Do you think it, are my 40s tough because my 20s were, were not my best behavior? Or people will, in another way, say, you know what, if I was a better person, I'd have a better life. If I was just a better person, I'd have a better life. And if I would just do these steps right, then everything would work out better. It's just a formula, and I did it wrong. And because I did it wrong, it's not working out for me. If I were a better person, I'd have a better life, to which I kind of smile, and I sit back in my chair, and I go, um, well, that seems like a nice idea, but that's called karma, and that's a different religion. And so I don't know if you have any more time here, but we're about done. Because that's not, that's not Jesus. Tim Keller says the more conservative the more conservative in the room would often take the guilt track. That we walk down the street and we see the man born blind. We see the alms taker, the homeless man, sign out. He says the conservative take the guilt track, a tendency to shame your poverty as a result of your poor character. You failed. That's why you're there. Where the more liberal will tend to take and lean towards anger, which is to say your poverty is a result of some oppression or some system's poor design. That someone else's poor character puts you there. It's a tendency to blame that someone failed you. That where some say you failed, others say someone failed you, but everybody has a place to put it in the anger bucket or in the guilt bucket. And while both may be partially true and both may be wildly incorrect, it's all we know to do is to stick it in one or the other. Jesus' response to his disciples saying, who sinned? Is it anger or blame, Jesus? Which one should he have? Should he be mad that his parents did this to him? Or should he feel bad that he's a sinner? And Jesus goes, neither. Neither. Which is a beautiful answer in that it totally undoes the question. It forces them to reconsider whether the question was even valid in the first place. So what happened? He answers his own question. When they go, so what happened then? If it's neither, then what? And he says, this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. Who's to blame? Neither. This happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. I'm going to steal Tim Keller's analogy directly from 1991, which in 1991 made a whole lot more sense than it does in 2019. But stick with me. He says this is like a clock. To which some of you go, A clock. A clock. A wristwatch? Who's wearing a wristwatch? Who's wearing a non-digital wristwatch? Okay, now we have the generation split, right? Don't trust those digital watches. I don't know, sunspots, they throw off the time. A clock. A mechanical clock with cogs and wheels and gears that turns hands that tell time. He says, in Genesis, God... Is, is, is the great clock designer and he's putting together these incredible pieces to make like the old grandfather clock. You can think of a beautiful old grandfather clock with walnut and that beautiful etched door and inside these perfect glass, I mean uh, brass pieces and these gold pieces and the silver pieces and they all fit together just so and when they work just right, as God put them together, as they work just right, the, the hands turn beautifully. The hands keep perfect time. In Genesis, we hear that God sort of built humanity like a central cog in the clock of the universe. He ordered it just so that there would be God, and just under God and above nature would be man, and so our cogs would fit together just so. The problem was humanity didn't like its place and so rebelled into sin, and with a desire to be our own gods, we, desi- we desired to, to change the design that God had created. 
We tried to put our cog in a more prominent spot in the God spot. And so we took our cog and we tried to force it in where it didn't belong. And what we get out of that is the crunching and the grinding of gears as they try to fit in a way they were never designed. And the clock intends to work and it intends to move it and intends to keep time. And instead we hear grinding and crunching and groaning and grumbling. And if it was an old cartoon, the thing would pop open and all the pieces would just fly out. The hands stop turning accurately. They go too slow for a season and then too fast, even backwards. As you and I look around the world we live in and we go, it seems like we're going backwards. It seems like this is getting further from the design, not closer. We're not getting better. It's getting worse. It's not getting more peaceful. It's getting there's more war. It's not getting closer to harmony. We're getting more divisive. It's almost like design itself is beginning to unravel. Like the design has been fouled. Genesis 3 says that God basically looks at humanity and says nature's never going to work the same way again. God looks at humanity and what's happened with the design and how man has tried to become something it was never designed to be. In Genesis chapter 3, God says it's not going to work anymore. The disease and death and disaster now take the place of the design I had for peace and wholeness. God says the gears will grind for everyone because sinners entered into the equation. Because sin is here, the gears will grind and groan and grumble and creak. And it isn't your particular sin. It's not your particular sin. It's sin. It isn't that your sin doesn't have consequences. It isn't that your actions don't create downstream effects that can create all kinds of heartache down the way. That can still be true. So don't hear me say that your sin has no consequence. But what God is saying is the reason for the brokenness we feel around us isn't your sin. It's the brokenness of sin. After my last sermon at my previous church, I got a a phone call. Well, actually, I preached my last sermon, and then someone came up and said, by the way, he's leaving, and he's moving to a swamp in Ohio. At which point, people were very confused. So we go to lunch, and we cry our tears, and we're leaving. We're moving to the frozen Ohio swamp, because who wouldn't? Where the roads are always closed, and never mind. <clears throat> We go to lunch, we get home, and I've told this story before. We get a phone call. There's been a fire at the church. There's a fire at the church. Kitchen fire, grease fire, small fire, no big fire. Whole thing on fire. Whole thing gone. It's a 21 truck at the church fire. It's an every person standing around it watching everything you know burn down kind of fire. Not long after the fire, since I was leaving people would come to me. And after making sure my alibi was straight, that it wasn't me who burned the church down after my final sermon, they would say, what do you think God's trying to tell us? As if there was some sort of secret that I was going to be leaving with, and maybe I could tell them what had been happening, the evils that were going on behind the walls that God was then punishing us for with this fire. What do you think God's trying to tell us with the fire? To which I would give them a very knowing nod, and I'd usher them over into a corner, and I'd lower my voice. Listen, don't tell anybody this. But I think God is telling us maybe we shouldn't have run 
electrical conduit flush with the ceiling. Because then the roofer who punctured it with a roofing nail wouldn't have punctured the conduit, which wouldn't have arced when the air conditioner came on in June in the middle of a hot Texas summer. And then the building wouldn't have burned down when the arc caught on the insulation and the whole thing burned. I think that's what God's trying to tell us. To which the person who thought they were getting the dirt on the church went, wait, what? That's not, that's not it at all. I said, what do you mean, what is God trying to tell us? We did a dumb thing 30 years ago because it was code, and code was dumb, and so we followed code, and then it got caught fire, and then the insulation fell on the seats, and the seats caught fire, and everything burned, and it's gone. What, what do you want me to say? Yeah, but what, who caused it? Should we be angered or guilted? To which he went, neither. Like, consequences are real. But, but the idea that God is sending rain clouds or lightning bolts is punishment for your individual sins, which is something our Christian world believes. That God is sending lightning bolts and rain clouds because of your individual sins on Tuesday, on Thursday, in June, or in January. That God went, ooh, sin, lightning bolt, here you go, take that. That doesn't align with Scripture. That isn't the Christianity of the Bible. You have to zoom out a little bit. Zoom out and say, well, how is that true? Wait a minute, are you saying that our sins don't have consequences? Didn't say that. I'm saying your sins are not the cause for your punishment in life. There's no connection between your sin on Tuesday and your tragedy on Thursday. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says this, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Either your sin is what put Christ on the cross, all of it, past, present, future, sins you haven't considered to even think of yet, that's what put Christ on the cross. Either your sin is what put Christ on the cross or you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. What sin put Christ on the cross? Just some of it or all of it? All of it. So there is no condemnation. You cannot be condemned for your sins because your sins have been taken to the cross and they are done away with. Sin leads to punishment? Yeah, it does. Sin leads to punishment. And Jesus took the fullness of that punishment for all on the cross. And so when you want to connect those dots and go, wait, wait, I think I disagree with you. Sin does lead to punishment. I'd say, you're absolutely right, it does lead to punishment. Sin leads to punishment. Jesus took the punishment on the cross for you and me. And for all who might believe in that, they, they get entered into eternal life. They get welcomed into the life of Christ, into the resurrection of Christ. We get entered into that. We get invited into that. So does sin lead to punishment? Yes. Is punishment for you? No, because Jesus took it for you. Jesus didn't take some sin and save some for later so he could punish you. Like we see in Psalm 22, his feet were pierced, his hands were pierced, his clothes were gambled over. He was mocked, treated like a dog. Not for part of your sins so the rest could be withheld for your later punishment for all of it. And some of you are struggling with this right now. Because it's not what we're taught, whether explicitly or implicitly. We're told, hey man, this is kind of your fault. Oh, this tough life you're in, that's kind of your fault. God's punishing you for your sins. And this says God punished Jesus for your sins. Now, your downstream behavior, just it has consequences, but your sins are not the problem. Your sins are on Christ. Traffic and construction happens because stuff breaks down over time. Because stuff breaks down because the world is imperfect. Traffic and construction are necessary because stuff just doesn't work like it's supposed to. Pain and suffering happen because humanity was broken by sin. 
Because perfection was broken back in the garden and now the world is full of imperfection crashing into imperfection, crashing into imperfection. And when we get into a world where imperfection is crashing into imperfection, what do we get but a wildly imperfect life where sin from the beginning has created suffering in the present. Paul says a little later in his letter, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility back in the garden, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free. What's the hope of God? That we'd be set free from the bondage of sin to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning and grinding gears together in the pains of childbirth until now. The curse put on to Eve is the thing that creates the grinding now. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, you and I, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Verse 28, the final verse in the passage we're reading says, we know that for those who love God and all things will work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The world is groaning and grinding as we barrel through brokenness after brokenness. And yet, while creation creaks under the weight of brokenness and while we are part of creation, it's saying that there is a redemption afoot. That there is something greater happening in our midst. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.10, he says, everything happens according to the counsel of his will. According to God's will, everything is happening according to the counsel of God's will. What that means, combined with this, that means that God governs that even that he didn't desire or design. That that which he didn't desire or design, he still governs. It still shows up and he still has dominion. That God still has control and God will still monitor and God will still channel everything that comes to be for his good and his glory. So Jesus looks at the blind man and Jesus says, this man's tragedy is not a result of his sin or his parents' sin. Jesus knew uniquely that he would be the one to take all sin. Jesus looks at the man born blind and said, this is something that God didn't design and didn't create when he breathed life into humanity. And yet, it was still something that will be used to display God's goodness. So he gives him the answer, why is this man born blind? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. Because what has befallen this man can still be channeled and used by a good God for a good purpose for his ultimate glory. Paul says God is working all things together for good. And in the groaning, there's a chance for us to draw closer to God, to point others to God. In the creaking and the crumbling of creation, you might be shaped and formed into being slightly more like your Savior. That the sanctification process, sanctification meaning becoming more saintly, becoming more holy, being set apart further from the world you were born into. As you progress as a follower of Christ, you are being sanctified. That everything you go through draws you closer and closer to heaven itself. And so born into the pit of brokenness, your life and the brokenness within it is designed to draw you out into something greater. That your season of struggle and your season of pain and your season of trial and your greatest suffering, while not designed by God or directed by God or sent to you as a lightning bolt due to your sin, 
It is being used and will be used to display the fullness of his glory. Through the kiln of the world, we are being placed in like clay and we are being finished and sanctified. We are being made perfect so that when we are fully ready, God will receive us. So how do we think about pain? One, Jesus came to eradicate sin and suffering for all eternity and your specific punishment for your sins, past, present, and future, they fall on Christ. Period, end of sentence. And any doctrine that tells you that your sin didn't fall on Christ is not a doctrine from this Bible. Jesus paid it all. So two, God governs everything we live in and everything we live through, including the pain of your life. And if God is good and God is governing your life and God is above all of this and God is above the fray of the brokenness and God has a hand on your life, then you can be sure of one thing, that this is not for nothing. That your battle is not for nothing, that your pain is not for nothing, that your sorrow is not for nothing, that your grieving is not for nothing. More than that, your tears and your heartache and the groaning and creaking of this place are for something. That there is a plan and there is a purpose, that there is something greater going on. The question becomes, what if this pain, which was not of his desire or his design, was going to be used to bring about ultimate healing in you? What if it was to bring about ultimate healing in the lives of those you work with and walk with, those who might watch you suffer, might see something glorious in it? Because in Jesus, God used sorrow and suffering to bring salvation. Think about this. In Jesus, God used sorrow and suffering to bring salvation. He used pain to bring ultimate healing. So why would we expect anything less in our own lives? If God uses the sorrow and suffering of Jesus to bring ultimate healing, why would he do less with your sorrow and your suffering? Why would you expect him to do anything less with your life? Let's pray. Father, considering pain is a challenge in so many ways. We have been conditioned and enculturated Father, we have been taught to put blame or find shame by a world around us that doesn't understand its own brokenness. Father, so many of us walk into this place today carrying that shame and carrying that pain that we have resentment for those who put us into places of sorrow or we have guilt for the way we think we've put ourselves there. Lord, my prayer for our community is that we would find our way out of that box, that we would recognize not only that you have conquered sin and death through Jesus, but that you are a good God. You are a loving Father. You call us your sons and your daughters. You call us your children who you love who you would do anything for, who in fact you sent Jesus to die for. Father, we would root our identity in who you say that we are. We would give up the lies of a culture that says there must be someone to blame for this and recognize that we live in a broken place and there is only one healer. So Father, let us draw close to you. 
We ask you to use the pain that we feel, the, the seasons of trial and suffering, Lord, the tears. For every single person in here who is in a battle, Father, I pray that you would give them the eyes to see the path you've laid before them. That they might display your goodness and your glory even in the midst of a world that is living outside of its design. God, thank you for being near to us and for being with us. God, thank you for being for us in all things. Help us to trust you in that. In Jesus' name, amen.